the journey toward economic equality and inclusive growth is a critical part of creating a fairer society. But are we making progress in creating equal opportunities for all segments of the population? And what's the economic potential of doing so? It's partly that there are more funds now which are focused on social, environmental, governance issues, the ESG funds that we talk about. And diversity is one of the factors that they look at in amongst all of this. So I think it's partly following the money. And I think it's also partly that society has realized the progress women have made and the economic contribution they've made has been enormous. So the changes that we've seen in society have helped as well. I'm Alison Nathan, and this is Goldman Sachs Exchanges. For this special episode, I'm speaking with my colleagues in Goldman Sachs Research, Sharon Bell and Giselle George-Joseph, who've recently published research looking at the progress, challenges, and opportunities facing women and Black Americans, respectively. They also discuss the potential policy solutions that can help reduce racial, gender, and economic inequities, as well as the role that the private sector can play, and why doing all of this could ultimately raise the level of global growth over the long term. Sharon, Giselle, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. So let's start with some context on your research. Giselle, you recently published a piece entitled Historically Black, Historically Underfunded, Investing in HBCUs. And Sharon, you published a report called Women Still Hold Up Half the Sky. Both of these pieces are part of a body of research looking at longer term economic and policy issues. Why has Goldman Sachs research published on issues of gender and racial equality And how does your latest research build on your prior work in this space? Giselle, maybe you can start. Thank you, Alison. And again, thank you for having us here. So for us at Goldman, we've been writing on inclusive growth research for almost 25 years. And one of the tenets of that research for us is that if we as a community, as a country, as a market, if we are able to effectively address racial and economic disparities that we see in our communities, that that's not just the right thing to do, the fair thing to do, but that it's good for business and it's good for the economy. And at Goldman, we care about an economy that's working for everybody. We care about equality. And so for us, being able to use our research platform to talk about these issues, we hope we'll be able to drive change. I was going to say, just re-emphasizing what Giselle said, this is certainly not a new topic for us to be writing about diversity now. It's around 25 years that we've been writing about this. And we find looking at these issues are important for global growth and for performance. So they're the kind of natural territory economists, strategists should be looking at. It's not a sort of distinct area that we tend to see as separate from all our other research. We see it as an important body of research when it comes to driving performance and driving economies. And there's just been a consistency. We write on it not just once and then don't come back to it for 25 years. We've written pieces. The first ones we did were on Japan, specifically where the gaps were so large between men and women. But we've written on emerging markets. We've written more recently on Europe, for example, and the progress made there and the policy changes. So it's a consistent pattern of research, which very much is part of our general body of research that we do on economies. But correct me if I'm wrong, we have had, I observe, a greater focus on these types of issues, even though we have a long history with them over the last three, four, five years. Has it gained in importance or has it just gained in focus? What's driven that increase in focus for us? 
I mean, from my perspective, I was surprised when I wrote on women moving ahead in Europe three years ago. I was really surprised at the amount of focus on it. I thought that there would be some, but I was surprised that I had so much demand to talk about it, partly because it was a bit of a positive message. So we were in the middle of the pandemic and we wanted to see that things were progressing, that women's participation was improving and that gender pay gaps were coming down and we were making some progress, even though admittedly there's a lot more to do in terms of progress. But I also think it's partly that there are more funds now which are focused on social, environmental, governance issues, the ESG funds that we talk about. And diversity is one of the factors that they look at amongst all of this. So I think it's partly following the money. And I think it's also partly that society has realised the progress women have made and the economic contribution they've made has been enormous. So the changes that we've seen in society have helped as well. That's what I was going to say, that we have actually seen an increase in client demand for these types of topics because it's an increased focus for our clients. And I think that is, you know, a good observation to share in the sense that it's not just us focusing on it, but there's real demand for this. For HBCUs in particular, I think the recent Supreme Court ruling obviously impacts the timeliness of this report. We have sort of two stories converging, right? On one hand, we have the affirmative action ruling. And if you just think back to the historical significance of affirmative action, you had that implemented to address some of the structural racism that especially Black Americans experienced over time in U.S. history. And then you have these HBCUs that were born of segregation that always focused on Black equality, Black education. If you think back to the mission of these institutions and some of the leaders that they've educated over time, whether Martin Luther King Jr. or Thurgood Marshall or even Vice President Kamala Harris, it's really timely when we think of those two issues converging together. We have had a lot of HBCU presidents say that they think the recent ruling from the Supreme Court will actually drive further enrollment in these institutions, a trend that we had been seeing in the past decade anyway. And so very, very timely, I think, for us to be able to put something out on that topic. Let's dig a little bit more into the education piece of this. Education has long been a way to level the playing field for underrepresented groups. But Giselle, set the stage for us a little bit. First, just talk about the overall state of college graduation rates for Black Americans and how those rates differ between HBCUs and primarily white institutions. It's a great topic. And I love your point, Alison, about leveling the playing field, because we see that education and college education in particular continues to be a really important step into mobility. The college graduation rates tend to be very noisy. So I want to clarify that before I even say that we have seen a ton of progress, especially for Black women in just the college achievement over time. But college graduation stats have a lot of noise in it. So for example, financial status of the schools. So schools with bigger endowments tend to be a little bit more successful than schools without. Socioeconomic levels of the students. So for example, Colleges where you see very large number of Pell Grant recipients tend to do less well in graduation rates than colleges with fewer Pell Grant recipients. So if a whole family makes under $60,000, they're eligible for Pell Grants. Academic preparedness of students. So you see a lot of Black students tend to not come from schools, for example, that help them be very prepared for college. And so all of those things actually impact what a school's college graduation rate will be. Everyone does not start on equal footing. So on paper, the gap is 61 versus 38, 61% national college graduation rate in the U.S., 
38% for HBCUs. But those factors that I just mentioned, all of these factors are really important in contributing to those graduation rates. And if we control for those factors, HBCUs actually have a higher graduation rate than non-HBCUs. That's great context. One of the stats that stood out to me the most from your research was the fact that HBCUs advance students from lower income families to higher incomes at roughly twice the rate of non-minority serving institutions. Tell me about that and why that's the case. So HBCUs have an amazing record of taking low-income students from the bottom two quintiles and taking them to the top two quintiles. And to your point, it's a pretty remarkable stat. So a big part of that is because HBCUs enroll a high number of low-income students, and that means they are able to provide a very scalable model of upward mobility, meaning because they are accessible, affordable, a lot more lower income students can go into these schools. And so they do a better job of graduating a very high number of lower income students. If you compare that to Ivy Plus schools, so it Ivy League schools plus University of Chicago, MIT, Duke, our senior alma mater, and Stanford, these schools represent only about 4% of low-income students. So it's a really different student body attending an HBCU than an Ivy League college. In addition to that, HBCUs also provide a really safe environment for students. So for example, hate crimes have increased over time. In 2020, we saw about 50% of the hate crimes on campus driven by race and ethnicity. And when you have an environment like that, HBCU, for a lot of students who are minority, tend to create a safer environment for students to feel like they can just be students. I actually went to Spelman College in Atlanta recently and had a student say to me, part of the reason she had chosen Spelman, a Black student, was that she could just be a student at Spelman. And so that's really important, I think, for a lot of students of color. And the last one is that HBCUs have proven to really create a very supportive environment from faculty to staff. And all of these are really important in creating positive academic outcomes for students. And in part, I think, Allison, that's why you see such an amazing stat, the ability to graduate students at twice the rate than non-HBCUs. If HBCUs have been so successful at building a pathway to equality for Black Americans, which we so desperately need more of, why haven't we seen a greater expansion of HBCUs across the country? It's a great question. And I think a lot of that stems from the historical and systemic underfunding that we'd seen in HBCUs, quite frankly, for the past almost two centuries that they've existed. So they've suffered from unfair distribution of funds. There have been programs started at non-HBCUs that were never started at HBCUs at all or started decades later. So one, you have this historical underfunding. If you don't have the funding to drive your institution, It's going to be hard to grow, I think, hard to sustain, hard to thrive as an institution. Outside of government funding, we also see that HBCUs have always received in the past just less private donations. And so funding overall has been a huge issue for those schools. During 2020, we saw an uptick in the funding HBCUs were receiving, in part because of the Black Lives Matter movement, in part because of the pandemic, in part because you had the George Floyd murder, which really shone a light on these issues for a period of time. But overall, and for many, many decades, HBCUs have struggled with funding. But as you mentioned earlier, we have seen an increase in enrollment of HBCUs relative to primarily white institutions in the wake of everything going on in the world with George Floyd. 
uh, and beyond, correct? That is very correct. And I think a large part of that, and it really started in about 2014. So the past decade, HBCU enrollment, especially of Black students, have really grown over time. And I've mentioned some of the issues, whether it's campus unrest or societal unrest. Those factors end up driving Black students to want the safety and the sort of comfort of a historically Black college. Evidence that Black students enroll at HBCUs faster during times of racial unrest. I mean, that's actually proven in the data. So we, we've definitely seen that over the past couple of years. Just as an example, Morehouse College, which is a Black college, mostly for men in Atlanta, Georgia, had an uptick of 60% in applications in 2020, 60% year over year. And that's post George Floyd and all of the issues that we were seeing related to racial discord in the country. And Sharon, let me turn back to you. Your research, as I mentioned, focused on women in the labor force and the progression there. You looked at drivers that can improve female participation in the labor force, education being one of them. How much of an impact did you find education can have on driving workforce participation or were there other factors that were more important? Yeah, it's interesting listening to Giselle talking about the U.S. and how important education it is to black students. And we find a very, very similar thing for women globally. I mean, I would say there's three broad drivers of women's likelihood to be in the labor force. Education, first of all. Secondly, family-friendly policies by governments and companies. So policy really matters. And then thirdly, the economic development of the country. And, you know, if I home in on education, because I do think that's absolutely crucial, it's very specifically women's education. We find that education for men, that's obviously important too, and it will improve men's productivity and wages, but it doesn't change the likelihood that they will work. All men tend to work regardless of the education level of men. If you look globally, they are typically seen as the family's main earner. In contrast, the more education a woman gets, the more likely she is to work outside the home at all. Indeed, we found that women's participation in the workforce, it has risen gradually in the last 15 years globally. But if you separate it into both developed markets and emerging markets, it's risen globally in that last 15 years. But all of that can be attributed to women's improved education over that period. So the likelihood, your propensity to work for someone with, say, a high school education or a degree, that hasn't changed. It's just that more women are now getting those levels of education. They're fortunate enough to have those levels of education and access, which really links back to Giselle's point about making sure more people, more Black people in particular in the US, get that opportunity to get the education, which the HBCUs are providing. We find exactly the same thing for women. If you get that opportunity to move up the education ladder, you are much more likely to work and obviously more productively work as well. But it's obviously not just education, family-friendly policies, economic level of development, all of those things together. But I would say education is probably the key one. And so you say that we've made some progress in seeing increased labor participation rates from women in many countries around the world. But how much progress have we actually made? How much farther is there to go in terms of attempting to close that gender gap in the participation rates? Yeah, looking at female labor force participation over the last 15 years, we have seen this kind of slow, steady improvement. It's increased in the last 15 years about six percentage points. And that's true in both developed markets and emerging markets. So to give you an idea of where we're at, for developed markets, about 73% of women work participate in the labor market. For emerging markets, it's slightly under 60%. Whereas for men in both developed markets and emerging markets, it's well into the 80s in terms of participation. So it's below men, but it has improved. 
by about six percentage points over time. And that's true if we look at developed markets or emerging markets. And it's just been gradually improving every year. And as I said, I think that is mainly driven by the better education that women are getting. And you just mentioned that we are seeing similar patterns in developed and emerging markets. Are there particular countries that stand out as above the curve on it or below the curve in terms of these participation rates? So on the above the curve, Scandinavian countries stand out most of all. So in Sweden, it's extremely high, but Denmark, Norway, participation by women is very high. It's still slightly below men, but exceptionally high. But the one that I think really stands out to us, and we wrote a, a kind of feature in our research on this, was India. The recorded Indian female labor force participation rate is exceptionally low. It is a mere 20% of all working age women in India are in formal employment. And that's actually unfortunately fallen in recent years. It was higher 15 years ago. It's come down, even though Indian growth has been so good over this last decade and a half. So why is it so low? Why are so few women working in informal employment? And I think some of it is mismeasurement. So many women do work, they work very hard, but they work often in their family businesses and that's not always recorded as well. But I do think there are huge inequalities for women in India. The gender pay gap is high, a very low age of marriage as well in India. And there's also prevailing social norms that limit the occupational choices for women as well. And then there's another important point that I hear, and it's not just for India, you hear this in several emerging markets as well, crime against women is quite high. And on reported statistics is rising and increased crime deters women. It reduces their mobility as well. And that means that they're less likely to seek out work, good quality work, productive, high wage, high paying work in a slightly further out location. They may also be deterred from getting education if that requires leaving the home, moving around, et cetera, if crime levels are high. So I think there are lots of inequalities in India for women. And that's one of the reasons the participation rate is so low. But I absolutely think that it can improve over time. It really just has to be focused on. Let's talk for a second about the gender pay gap, which has also received a lot of focus. What have you observed in terms of how that's evolving? Yeah, we are seeing it narrow as well. So just as per participation rates, they've improved for women. You've actually seen that gender pay gap narrow as well. But as with many other things, it's narrowing, but slowly, and the gap is still quite large. I think Japan is a very good example. So when we first talked about the large gender inequalities in Japan back in the late 1990s, the pay gap between men and women in Japan was 50%. So very large, exceptionally large. 15 years ago, it had narrowed to about 30%. So that's a pretty significant move. And then if I look now, it's now just over 20% pay gap between men and women in Japan. So certainly a narrowing pay gap, real sign of progress there. And you see that globally. But one place where the change has been a little bit disappointing is actually the US. In the last 15 years, the pay gap has barely moved in the US, and it's still around 20%. And other than in Japan and Korea, it's really one of the highest of developed markets. And this comes back to this point about the progress that Europe has made at more women in the labor force and lower pay gaps in Europe as well. So I think there is more progress to go. The pay gaps are still quite large, but we have certainly seen progress in the last 15, 20 years. And we are on this call all well in favor of seeing more progress on the gender pay gap, as well as participation, of course. So I think we all agree that achieving a fairer society is, of course, important because it's just simply the right thing to do. But Giselle, you made the point at the start that there are also real economic benefits of closing these racial and gender gaps. Talk to us a little bit about what you found. 
So specifically to HBCUs, they make up 2.5% of U.S. colleges, but are responsible for 13% of bachelor's degrees, over 20% of STEM degrees, and 10% of Black American doctorate degrees, which is really important because physicians of color in particular tend to focus more on disadvantaged neighborhoods. And so being able to service those neighborhoods is incredibly important to continue to educate Black Americans to get to that result. And that's pretty significant. It's almost like the little engine that could, right? Research also shows that beyond the students, HBCUs have really broad impact on Black communities. So, for example, proximity to HBCUs actually increased the share of adult Black Americans in a community with a college degree. And so that means it's broader income growth for the entire community as a whole. We also know that educated citizens earn more. They pay higher taxes over time. They cost less for the government in terms of welfare or health care. So they are healthier individuals. They also participate more in civic and political participation just overall or activities. And all of that tends to lead to a safer environment and a safer community. So it's, again, one thing, it's important to do it because it's a fair thing to do. But there are a ton of economic benefits that come from educating the mass population. And Cheryl, what did you find when looking at this question relative to women? Yeah, we find this similar. You can easily improve employment. You can improve GDP. If you just narrow these gaps by half, we reckon that the level of GDP across developed markets and emerging markets could improve by about 5 to 6%. And the GDP impact for emerging markets generally comes from women entering formal employment, whereas the GDP impact for developed markets would become really from a reduction in that pay gap. But also, I would say that you can get a growth impact through higher educated women and more labor force participation by women tends to lead to better health outcomes for children. And that can be a really important factor as well for the longer term productivity of your society too. So I think absolutely equality is ethically, morally most important, but economically it can have huge gains both shorter term and longer term. Sorry, Sharon, did you say health outcomes for children? Yeah, health and education outcomes for children. So when women are better educated, particularly in emerging markets, this tends to lead to better health outcomes for their families. And it tends to lead to better education outcomes for their families as well, because they also have a higher degree of demand for education for their own children. They can provide better support and resources to those children as well. And again, if you look statistically, it matters more that the woman has got a higher education than the man in the family and when it comes to health and education outcomes for the broader family, for the children as well. So those things mean that it's not just a bit, as as Giselle was saying, you can help the person, but you help the community more broadly as well. So both of you have discussed that we are seeing some slow signs of progress in these areas, but obviously much more can and should be done. What can policymakers and the private sector investors do to continue to move the needle in the right direction and potentially more rapidly? Sharon, maybe you can start. So I think in emerging markets, I would focus on education. As we discussed, this is absolutely a crucial thing. That would be my focus when it comes to emerging markets. But Perhaps for more developed markets in particular, better family-friendly policies, including maternity and paternity leave, and also good quality and subsidized childcare is very, very important. And those policies, if you look at family-friendly policies, I would call them shared parental leave, this good quality childcare, which is subsidized to some extent, those policies are definitely associated with more female labor force participation. So family-friendly policies in developed markets 
better education and better access to education for women in emerging markets as well. And then I guess for corporates, for companies, broadening out the leadership pipeline. There's been a very sharp rise in the share of women sitting on company boards, particularly in Europe, but this is true elsewhere. But that's been a kind of metric that everyone has focused on. It's been a particular focus and it's changed really dramatically in one generation and that absolutely should be applauded. But there's not been a comparable rise in the number of women in other leadership roles. So more broadly in management roles across companies or in the top echelons of leadership, things like the CEO and CFO role. We think that focusing on broadening out the pipeline at all levels is really very important. And the sectors that in particular should be a focus would be technology and financials. Those sectors are quite lagging in terms of female representation generally at the more senior levels. But those sectors are also crucial when it comes to financing for women-led businesses. And the tech sector in particular have got implications for artificial intelligence and work patterns and that will affect both men and women. So we want a diversity of people represented there. So those are the sectors in particular the focus should be on. I think that's a really important point, Sharon, because as you said, we've made progress in the labor participation rates, but it hasn't necessarily been even in terms of looking at levels. And that's an important point for policymakers to take away. Giselle, what are your thoughts in terms of what policymakers can do? I think if I narrow in on Sharon's point on education and the importance of making that accessible and affordable, for policymakers, I would say it's to ensure that they create access to funding across the board, that financial support for lower income families and students are sustained, and that there is governance around those type of policies that really help increase the level of participation from low-income families. And then, of course, equitable funding and putting in place, again, governance to ensure that happens. And what about the private sector? What role can it play here? For the private institutions or investors and private companies, make donations and make those donations flexible. It's incredibly important that these schools can direct the donations in the places they think it's most needed and that those donations are not restricted. So that's really important. Number two, I would say set aspirational goals for hiring HBCU interns and graduates. And then thirdly, creating pathways within your institutions for these students. So it's not just hiring, but ensuring mentoring, coaching, developing programs that's able to retain and sustain participation of those students in your organizations. Giselle, Sharon, thank you both for your perspectives on these very important topics. Thank you, Alison. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Goldman Sachs Exchanges recorded on Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more, visit GS.com and sign up for Briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.
The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.